This week's episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by Vegas.com. I've been uh, told by the boardwalk higher-ups that people are upset about my ad reads, uh, both fans and uh, companies alike. They say... Sometimes I'm a little too uh sometimes I'm a little too vulgar. Sometimes I'm a little too fast in the ad read, sometimes I'm a little too slow. Getting all kinds of notes. Uh so in um in a in a kind of a protest here, I'm going to I'm going to read the ad, just the ad read, no jokes, nothing else. So vegas.com has got the best deals in Las Vegas hotels of every type to help you find the perfect room that will fit your budget. Next Looking for a cheap stay in a clean cubby? No problem. How about suites of epic grandeur and luxury Las Vegas resorts? Yep, got them, too. Yeah, next. Before you make your Las Vegas hotel reservations, read hotel reviews from people who've actually stayed there. So you'll know you're making the right choice. Next. Acrobats, divas, magicians, jokesters, showgirls, and puppets. <laughs> wow. The new the new lions, tigers, bears, oh my. There are so many shows in Las Vegas that you can't possibly take them all in. But there's not a doubt you'll find something that'll blow you away. Good thing Vegas.com has tickets to all of them. Need help finding the best things to do in Las Vegas? Vegas.com knows what you want, and we've got it. Roller coasters, check. You know those famous roller coasters in Las Vegas? The uh, the ones that everyone goes to Las Vegas to go on, the roller coasters? Machine gun shooting ranges, yep. Zip lines, we've got multiples. <laughs> we've got more than one. Uh, Zipline. Free attractions? We've got those too. Don't you love those free attractions? I love to be asked, do you want to go see a free attraction? Uh, Vegas is the place to do what you would never do at home, and we're going to help you do it. Vegas.com offers the best package deals on Las Vegas vacations with more than 400 airlines from 1,700 departure cities, plus world class Vegas resorts, so we can help you create a great vacation package at the best price. And booking your flight and hotel room together can help you save on the entire package. Well, that's uh, that's the ad read. I guess I did make fun of it a little bit, which is probably going to get me in trouble here. But uh, this is how I'm going to read ads from now, just monotone voice, making a couple jokes. I'm a little hungover, which is probably why I sound more monotone than usual. But that's it. So find the best deals on hotels and trips to Vegas, and listeners will save even more by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash Vegas. That's boardwalkaudio.com slash Vegas. This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. On comedy writing, on comedy writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast with the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. We've got a great episode, but first... The best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the support artist button, shop with Dan's and Irwood. We get a little kickback. So we're continuing our month of the same sketch pitch with Mike Upchurch. He's worked on Mr. Show, The Chris Rock Show, The Downer Channel, Mad TV, and many more shows. He's also a current teacher at the Pack Theater in Los Angeles, which I've talked about many times on the show. I love doing stuff there. And I've taken its class, and it's great. Mike also wrote a thesis on sketch comedy, which we didn't really talk too much about here, but I wrote an article for Splitsider, which I I guess is now Vulture, uh, about it, so make sure to check that out. Mike's great. He knows a lot about sketch comedy, and uh, I love talking to him. So here is Mike Upchurch. All right, Mike, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, Where are you from originally? Originally, I'm from Portland, Oregon. Okay. Born in Multnomah County Hospital. 
Oh. Dr. Pernol. I don't know. I have my little footprint thingy, so I know all that information. <laughs> Eight and a half pounds. Dr. Pernol? Dr. Pernol, yeah. He did my circumcision. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It is weird that uh, you never really meet the doctors that like do the work for you. No. I mean, I met him when I was uh, zero. Yeah. Or, you know, five, five minutes old or whatever. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you, did you stay in uh, Portland for your childhood? Uh, I was lived in Portland until I was three and a half and then my family moved to Hawaii. My dad uh, was a boat carpenter in Hawaii for, uh, like uh, 18 months we lived there and then we moved around, uh, California. We lived in uh, Northern Nevada for, uh, um, five years because our car broke down in, uh, Reno. We were on our way to Las Vegas. My dad used to deal, uh poker in Indian casinos in, in Portland and he got really good at it. And then, um, at some point somebody said, Hey, you gotta just go down to Vegas. You know, you can make a living dealing poker. And he was like, okay. He was good at it too. And, um, on our way there, our car broke down and we ended up living in, uh, South Lake Tahoe and Carson city for five years. And then we ended up ultimately moving to, uh, Las Vegas, Boulder city outside of Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And were you, were you into comedy at a young age? Yeah, I think so. Um, let's see. When when I was uh, seven or eight, my brother worked at a Shakey's Pizza, and they used to have all the Shakey's pizzas. I don't know if they do this anymore, but they used to. Uh, they'd have a projector, and the Shakey's would mail uh, old movies around, and so uh, my brother just got all the good ones. You know, he made sure to order all the uh, Buster Keaton stuff and the Laurel and Hardy stuff and. Uh, we used to go there and just hang out. I'd go there with my friends and just watch movies all day long. Just all these great classic movies um, at Shakey's Pizza. So I guess that was kind of an early thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved SNL. I saw the first episode a lot, you know, when it was airing. Um, oh, what were your, like, your thoughts when you first like watched it? Um, just that it seemed really cool and funny and, yeah. and anarchic, you know, and uh, unlike stuff I'd seen on American TV... I was already a Monty Python fan. That was on PBS, um, which I rarely watched. There was Upstairs, Downstairs, and those... Yeah, Blackadder. Kind of, uh, later. Yeah, that was much later. Um, but uh, one time I was flipping channels and just happened to stop, and it was Monty Python. It was the uh, Upper Class Twit of the Year Awards. <laughs> and uh, it was just... I could not believe how cool and different it was. And uh, I literally wrote on a piece of paper... Sunday, 9 p.m., and taped at the top of the TV set because I was like, I can't miss this. Right. There was no way to access anything. You had to watch it, and that was it. You know, on TV, you couldn't go back and look at it on the web. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I would say at an early age, I was a big fan of comedy. Yeah. Did you, uh, like in high school and stuff growing up, did you do, do you like any like uh, performance stuff or any like comedy adjacent things? Hmm. In high school? Not really. I mean, yeah. I was kind of a you know a wise guy i guess yeah um no i didn't do drama i had a lot of friends in drama uh and and band and um just you know stoner friends you know like that were funny and stuff um but uh yeah high school was for me sort of something i did during the daytime yeah (laughs) you know like i had other things that i thought were more important um I guess I, you know, a lot of people, high school is a, either a painful 
experience or a, you know, very significant experience in their life. Um, it was just kind of something I did when I was mm-hmm. a teenager. And, um, I remember I would, couldn't get wait to get home. Actually, if any, if you asked anybody from my high school, uh, you know, asked, gave them my name, they'd say, Oh yeah. The, the track runner. That's probably what they'd say. Yeah. Yeah. I ran track. Um, that was mainly the only sport I really ran. I, I tried, uh, cross country and just, I can't do distance. Mm. Um, just sucked sand for that whole time as a cross country runner, but I was a real good sprinter and, uh, had the school record. So my name was up on the, on the, uh, side of the gym for the 200 meter and the hundred meter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still, you know, when I was uh, in seventh and eighth grade, I would see the names. It was a guy named Roger ship and he held, held the school records and his name was up there like five times. And by the time I was a sophomore, I, my name was there instead of his because I broke his records. So, yeah, anybody that's when you wait for uh, your PE class, you sit and you look at those names up on the on the wall. So that's why people would know my name. Do you still have the the record? I think yeah, I think uh, wow. yeah, the two hundred meters still standing. Somebody might have broken the hundred meter. Um, I just uh, I'm gonna be sad if the two hundred meter goes down. <laughs> but, you know, whatever. It's, I'm I'm gonna have to go back into training if that happens. But uh, yeah, uh, when you went to college, did you know like what you wanted to do? No. Yeah. No. In fact, uh, I thought um, when I first joined, I thought, well, I should take finance, you know? So if, if I make money, I'll know what to do with it. So I think I declared myself a finance major and I took one finance class and transferred out of it because it was a lot of math. And I was just like, this is, you know, I, I wasn't really good at math. I remember in high school, I transferred out of algebra into home ec. Because mm-hmm. it was too uh, too much, I managed to take the minimum amount of math, and then I think in and they chose to do finance. Yeah, I, just <laughs> thinking, well, finance is money. That's not math, but yeah, it was a heck of a lot of math. <laughs> and so uh, I no, never took a finance class except tried that one, and then uh, eventually I took what was interesting. You know, I I had uh, uh, it was a state college and it was pretty cheap, um, and so you know UNLV. And so I took um, courses that looked interesting, and about four or five years in, um, I had built up a lot of communications credits, and I knew some people over there. And uh, I think it was like year six. Um, I was just continuing to take classes, and a friend of mine went, "Dude, you gotta, you gotta graduate. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta figure out, you know, get the hell out of school." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I guess I should." And um, I was very close to communications, so I, I you know, took the necessary classes to get my bachelor's and realized that it was, it was a growing, um, department. We had just gotten a, a bunch of money from Hank Greenspun died. Um, he was a, uh, journalist, um, in Las Vegas, um, may have had mob ties, um, <laughs> as anybody in, in Las Vegas does. I mean, um, we didn't talk about that much at the Greenspun School of Communications, <laughs> But uh, that's when we became the Greenspun School of Communications. And I think there was like $30 million or something that got freed up for the school. And so uh, they were, you know, they had grad student uh, positions open. And I was like, you know what? What the hell? I'm going to get a graduate degree. And so uh, I applied for grad school and um, went. Uh, I think ultimately I was there for nine years at UNLV and uh, got a. Uh, master's in communication studies. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 
And and that's when you wrote your uh, your sketch comedy thesis. Yeah, uh, because I was really at that point I was really into comedy. Like um, we had produced some shows uh, in on this place. It's called the Turnpike Lounge mm-hmm. on Industrial in Las Vegas, and uh, we'd produced shows. And um, I was really interested in sketch comedy, and I just thought, well, it always seemed like a really impra- impractical thing to do to become a comedy writer. But I thought. I'll get my communications degree and I'll study comedy and maybe I can get a job as a, uh, like a advertising writer. You know, that, that always seems like a real practical thing. Like, right. Oh yeah. That's a real job. You know, comedy writer doesn't sound practical at all, but I thought, yeah, I'll be an ad writer, um, director, whatever. And I thought that, that'd be creative and it would be something that I could do that, uh, wouldn't, you know, make me bored or suck my soul out or anything like that. And uh, so that was sort of my plan. And then uh, I'd written some screenplays and uh, sketch comedy. And a friend of mine was really interested in producing. And uh, he just said, uh, let's go to uh, L.A. Let's move to L.A. That was in, uh, let's see, December of 1995. I moved to uh, to L.A. And that was just, uh, you kind of knew what you were going to pursue with like in terms of like writing tv shows and screenplays no no <laughs> i uh i wanted to get a couple screenplays made um and so i was kind of focused on that and it, literally the first day i moved to vegas to uh to la i uh plugged in the tv there was a cable sticking out of the wall and mr show's first season the first episode came on i think it was a rerun it had only been on for a couple months, but uh, for the next uh, month, we had free HBO. And whoever had the apartment before us just left it, you know, for a month. And uh, I managed to watch all four of the first uh, the first season. I guess it's called an experiment. Um, they now, I think they they bundle the first four and then the next six as as the first season. Mm. But. Um, uh, at the time, that was their first season. They they called it a four episode experiment, and so I saw four four of those episodes, and I remember thinking, "This is really great. This is this is the kind of thing I would like to work on." And uh, well, it was about maybe sixteen or seventeen months later, um, I was actually working on that show. And so, between those two times, you're you're out there uh, like doing comedy, like live in the live comedy scene, right? I was going to a lot of comedy shows. Um, just, uh, I had a friend who was doing standup. I wasn't doing standup at the time. And, uh, I would just kind of go around and to open mics and, you know, watch him. Um, and I just watched a lot of stuff. There was a lot going on. There was the Luna Park or is it Luna Lounge? Uh, Luna Lounge, I think is in New York. Um, but I think it was Luna Park in, uh, in LA and it was, uh, it was the alt show. Beth Lapidus did a show and the point was, that uh, Beth would interrupt you if she sensed that you were doing material. Mm. So it really kept you on your toes and people couldn't do their tight 10, you know? So I think that was the point. And this whole thing was called alt comedy. And I believe there's so many definitions. Um, some people thought alt comedy was you, you know, just people who were unprepared and they brought notes up, you know? And they thought, oh, that's so unprofessional. Um, but I think really what it was is that it was people talking about their real life often, um, or it was just uh, not completely worked out material um, 
not not a uh, not stuff that people thought up to manipulate the little people. You know, sort of, they were actually trying to talk to the audience about you know things that happened to them. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people still did jokes, mm-hmm. but it was more conversational than you know at that time it was. You know, the '80s were not too far away, and there were all these road comics who had a lot of just cliched, very uh, pat material that they'd bring out. And the point of alternative comedy was, uh, this is actually stuff we're thinking about. I think. There's a million definitions of it. Well, because it's interesting because now alternative comedy, I don't know, it's like anything that's not in a club, it feels like. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of not useful definition really either. Not useful distinction at least. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say because all those people who are mainstream now are out of the business. <laughs> you know, like right. there's a, very few of them left. A lot of those road guys just didn't have the material mm-hmm. they'd spent years and years on 10 minutes and they just did those 10 minutes traveling around and i think what happened is uh cable kind of ruined that right it, you couldn't there all those clubs across the country people were no longer willing to get a babysitter and um you know get dressed up and shaved and and uh, put their makeup on to go out and see a comedian when they can just sit at home and watch the same stuff over and over and all these Basically, people were going and getting videos from shows that had been done and just putting them... A lot of them weren't even very good quality. But, you know, and the precursor to uh, Comedy Central, which was the Ha Channel, mm-hmm. I think, um, they just had stand-up on constantly. And a lot of it wasn't even very good. It was just a lot of these road comics as act. And uh, I think that kind of ruined it. It's, it's weird to think that, like, stand-ups, like, 40 years ago would just get, like, a good, like, 10 minutes, and they could just coast off that, like, I guess as a feature act or as a middle act for, like, for their whole careers. Yeah, it was like vaudeville, you know, you just, you spent a long time getting that perfect 10 minutes, and then you just went out and you did it. And then, you know, once TV came around, you you at least had to come up with a new five or 10 minutes every year or so if you were going to try to get on TV. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there was sort of a, you know, a shakedown where the people who couldn't quite hack it uh, just didn't do TV anymore, mm-hmm. you know. So how did you get your job on Mr. Show? Um, well, uh, I was just out um, sort of on the scene a lot. Um, I managed to bump into uh, Bob at a place called Pedro's. It's now called Public House. Oh, right, yeah, in uh, Vermont. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're in Los Feliz. And that place was... Uh, Rumored to be a mob run. There were a lot of, there's a bit of evidence that it was. Because it seemed like every time a show started getting successful, they would close it down. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And the place was always under construction. You know, you'd, and it looked like they had a million, uh, like everything, they had wainscoting on the walls. They had, um, you know, like framing around all the, uh, the, the tops of the ceilings and tile everywhere and like constant construction, which is, you know, when you're ma- laundering money. From the mob, that's what you do is mm-hmm. you have all these things that you're supposedly spending money on. And um, they discouraged people from coming in. Like, I think the police, like, you have to be able to serve what's on the menu. So you get soup, it's like right out of a can. You know, it's like, yeah. the, and there was no attempt to make it good or encourage people to come in and eat. And also, like, I remember once uh, I went in and got a beer and at the bar. It was like $3. And then... Um, I was sitting down and a, somebody comes by and says, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'd like a beer. And it was $5. And I'm like, oh. and I'm like, uh, I go up to the bartender after and I go, so it's $5 if you're down there. 
and he makes this look on his face. He goes, oh, I'm sorry. And he's like, and he gives me the money back. And then that guy was still working. The guy that, you know, <laughs> it's probably his cousin or something, you yeah. know. So there were a lot of, there was a lot of um, people who thought that it was a uh, mob laundering money for the mob. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's that way anymore. But yeah, so I bumped into Bob there um, and, and as well as a bunch of other people. Um, whoops. They're good. For the radio listeners, we, he just dropped his phone. Just dropped okay. his phone. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, I bumped into, uh, or I mean, I met um, Evan Schletter. He was doing the film music in between the acts and uh, had a lot of conversations with him about music. Um, I I knew the Fun Bunch, um, Scott Ackerman and BJ Porter, um, and just was kind of hanging out at that scene. And I, I had heard that Mr. Show had been canceled. Like somebody said it or I'm not sure I got it out of, into my head, but. And then, you know, was as hanging out there at the uh, at Pedro's. Uh, I realized that it wasn't canceled; that they had just wrapped their second six episodes, that sec- second half of the first season. Um, and uh, so that was exciting. And I managed to get some uh, VHS tapes of it before it got on HBO, and I was really excited to be able to see it. You know, and uh, I thought it was really good. And the show had grown a lot between those first four and then the next six. And um, I remember um, I just introduced myself to Bob and just uh, I recall thinking, geez, if I were legit, <laughs> what would I say? You know, like, <laughs> I guess, you know, I would just kind of ask how I would get my material over there. So he would take a look at it and not bug him in any other way. Like not um, not boast or try to market myself or anything, but just, hey, I'm a writer, sketch writer. Uh, how would I get my material over there so you guys can take a look at it? Um, and that's really what I said. Um, he was very nice. Uh, he said, well, yeah, uh, gave me the number to the Dakota films and said, you know, give me a call next week or something. And, um, I called him and, um, he kind of changed his mind (laughs) between, uh, when I met him at, uh, Pedro's and when I called him, but, um, I was polite, but persistent. I actually had a job working in phones at the time. So I was at work in my little phone cubicle with my headset on and I was, uh, I had pretty good phone skills and, um, I, he said something like, we can't really accept unsolicited material. It's just, you know, he, he would mentioned that there were these two guys, these brothers who sent 200 sketches to SNL and that they had continued to sue them for the, you know, the previous 10 years. Anytime wow. something similar to those premises came up, and I remember I went, those guys probably suck, man. You know, and I just said, hey, if you guys steal my stuff, I'd I'd be honored, you know. And um, and he said, well, we would never do that. And I'm like, well, you know, what if you just took a look at it? I don't have any expectations. And uh, he went, all right, you know, here's, send me the material. And uh, I, I, I sent it on a Friday and he called me back like a Monday or Tuesday. And uh, he said he was pleasantly surprised. He said, yeah, this is, these are good premises. You don't waste any time. Uh, some really funny beats in here. And I remember we, we, started talking about this one sketch that was uh it never ended up on the show but it was uh about a harvard uh professor who was uh, illiterate and it was like an ambush interview and and um we talked about it and he was thinking about doing using one of his characters he did on the show already um and i remember hanging up and going wow we just kind of co-wrote a sketch you know we worked on that sketch that was kind of cool and then for the next uh four or five months um, I continued submitting stuff, 
just I think I sent one just here's some more stuff um, and it was all new things I was really um, you know productive at the time and and you know motivated and ambitious and mm-hmm. so I sent I think 12 or about 12 sketches ultimately it was like three different submissions that I sent and um, they were reading them you know uh, I bumped into uh, David Cross and um, introduced myself and he went oh yeah yeah we've been reading your stuff yeah it's good good, good funny funny things we he said something like uh, we have to remind ourselves sometimes uh, oh we, we can't just keep writing on this mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's somebody else's sketch which was nice you know I, I had a I was good at writing two person sketches you know um, and so I submitted a lot of stuff that I think was pretty appropriate for the show and it just was kind of a my sensibilities really worked well for the show I mm-hmm. I, I like uh, conceptual sketches you know um, and uh, I like absurdist material uh, and so if I'm just sitting around thinking up stuff I, that I find funny, it's usually submittable to Mr. Show. Right. So um, it was a great, it was a good match. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, I continued uh, pitching material and um, just going out and, you know, I met pretty much everybody involved with the show over, uh, you know, four or five months. And then I just got a call one day from uh, Wendy at, uh, the Mr. Show office and uh, she's I, I wasn't even sure if I'd been hired but um, she said we're going to meet with some, some of the Mr. Show people it's this place called the Bourgeois Pig and uh, yeah that was uh, I was surprised to find out that I was going to be brought on to uh, to write on the show for uh, for the third yeah. season and so that was um, your first uh, TV writing job what was that transition like from going from like writing on your own to like being in a room and stuff? Um, well, I had been writing sketches with friends in mm-hmm. Vegas and we had been writing for shows. So it wasn't really that much different. Mm-hmm. Um, I, de- I definitely felt like um, may- maybe due to Bob's influence, but it was much more of a room thing where when we were writing with, we, we had a team of friends that we were writing, we would each submit our own thing. We would write it up, and then we would maybe give notes, but then we would just shoot it. Yeah. And there was not as much rewriting, and there was not as much, you know, examination of the premise and what we were doing and what did we want to accomplish and things like that. It was just uh, more work. Like, before it was like, um, you write it, and then the next step is to produce it, and the writing was done. But... On Mr. Show, it's like the writing really was never done. It was, it was always a chance to fix it, to tweak it, and then you give it to Bob and David, and then when they started rehearsing it, they'd continue changing things, and always with the intent of making it better. You know, um, not just rewriting to rewrite, because that happens a lot. But it was always like this, uh, how do we make this better? And, oh, this is a better word than that word. You know, mm. just all the way down to the you know, granular level, how do we make this better? And so it was a, it was a great experience. I changed the way I write. Um, and also just, uh, you know, um, I always felt like, uh, well, I know what's funny, you know, and if the audience didn't like it, I'd be like, well, they don't know what's going on. You know, I almost didn't care <laughs> what the audience thought. Cause I knew that it was funny. And 
I kind of learned it's like, no, you gotta, if it doesn't get laughs, there's a problem there, <laughs> you know? Um, and Bob was very much, if there's anybody that's a genius sketch writer, it would be Bob. Um, and it's weird, like, you know, in, in our culture, we depict genius as being somebody who uh, knows the answers to everything, who's like super sharp and super quick. Um, and that's definitely Bob, but as a sketch writer, he works with, from consensus, you know, mm. he would hear a, an idea and then he go, oh, let's, let's see what the room thinks, you know? And uh, it was a weird thought. Oh, we're going to present to the room and see what the room thinks. Not any particular individual, but what's the room think? And, um, I think that's maybe he picked that up from SNL or something, but it's a real, it's a great way to work mm-hmm. because you have sort of a safety thing. You know, it's like, yeah. And I think it makes it, um, by changing your work, it makes it so it's not just from one person and it makes it more, it gives it more variety and more, there's more surprises in it. Right. You know, cause very often you'll, you'll pitch your premise and you'll get all these different ideas and then you write all those ideas down and then Bob will say, yeah, look, take that and make it work. Mm-hmm. And so by taking several different points of view and just cramming them together and making it all work, you're sort of, there's built in surprises and differences than if you just had one person go, all right, I'm going to take my train of thought and write it down right. that you've often, that's just, you know, um, it just ends up being kind of like that person's style, you know, right. and it keeps it from getting any particular one style. It just makes it a really interesting, surprising, uh, uh, writing, which is kind of, I think how the Simpsons did it too. You know, they would, they would group write their stuff. Yeah, it's interesting that more people don't do that. Specifically because like writers room specifically are like are kind of supposed to be like that. Yeah. You think cuz it's supposed to be, it's all people sitting around talking. Mm-hmm. But um but that sounds very specific to like Mr. Show to do something like that. Yeah, I remember I, I would think of an idea and I would go, "Oh, I can't wait to hear what the room thinks," you know? Mm-hmm. And initially I was like, "The room? I don't know if I need a room, you know? I know what's funny." But no, it's it's definitely you want to have a check on on your own sensibilities, I think. Um, I remember there was an interview with Jack Nicholson that kind of made me think, yeah, he's onto something there. He, he said, um, I forget where it was. It was like biography or something. He said he doesn't want to be in control of his performance. He would rather have the director be in control, and he's eager to let the director have the control and for, for him to try to, as much as he can, get what the director's after because he said – you know, in the long run, when you look at someone's body of work, you want to have a variety to it, you know, and if it's just him, you know, turning the knobs and pulling the strings, I think he, he was suspicious of that. Well, it can't all be me. I'd rather have other people in control of it so that my work has a variety and a difference of points of view. And I think it's, it's the same way with comedy. It's like, you know, you want to, um, so I listen to the audience a lot more now mm-hmm. because I, I want to have some objective, check on my work you know like is it funny i don't know so i've gone from being much more um you know uh confident or uh what do you what like uh i guess it's i'm less sure of something when i immediately think of it because i'm suspicious you know if, if it went together too quickly i'm like eh, i don't know it's that's maybe it's hack i don't know mm-hmm. you know very often your first thought is kind of hacky right and you're your job as a comedy writer is to reverse engineer it into something that's different, surprising and unique. And, um, I mean, you always hear that whenever you're pitching ideas in a room, you'll hear this line a lot. Okay. This, but not this, 
here's the hacky version of what we're trying to accomplish. And it's like really easy, something you've seen a million times. And it's like, yeah, we want to accomplish that. Now let's figure out how to do it without being hacky. You know? And, and how, how do you like change that? How do you go from a hacky idea to something that isn't hacks? And I think, I think it's actually one of the number one things that you find in comedy writing is that the first idea might be funny, but it is usually not usually, but is often hacky. Yeah. Um, you think about it, you meditate on it, you you try to get things in the area. Bob used the expression, we gotta crack this thing open. You know, we gotta break it open, break it apart and see its its parts can, and how they work together and then replace each part a, a little at a time hmm. until we finally get a new thing that's that's satisfying. You know? Um and sometimes it's not even I think Bob is just a little suspicious of something that's too easy, you know? And so there was a lot of times where it would be sitting around silence, <laughs> people going, uh, Hey, what about this? Uh, nah, it's, it's kind of, we've seen that. Okay. Yeah. And then, you know, sometimes it would be just some kind of thing that would be somebody would kind of reluctantly, I don't know. How about this? And Bob would go, Hey, wait a minute. You know, and then it would catch fire and then we go, okay, that's the way to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's always a, it's like a searching. It's like, you know, it's the best comedy writers that I've ever worked with. Um, they're it's more of about a discovery process. They're being pulled along by the idea rather than driving it. You know, let's let's see where it goes. Let's let's explore. You know, we're, we're right here at this intersection. Let's uh, go down each street a little ways and see what's there. And then come back to where we are, and then you know we'll know what the best avenue is once mm. we've explored a little bit. It's like a deliberate putting the foot on the brakes so you can kind of explore the particulars as you go. I mean, Mr. Show wrote really fast, but it was always a kind of a deliberate uh, method of of uh, Bob was very good at just kind of directing traffic and and uh, stopping at a certain point and going, well, what about, what about this, you know, and um, kind of methodical and and uh, deliberate mm. in the way the pieces went together which i and other shows weren't like that it was much very much uh specific to the mr show which is why it was so good right very few bad sketches on that show a super high success rate yeah yeah probably the most successful sketch by sketch show ever i would say i don't know i would think so we had a better batting average than monty python was pretty great mm-hmm um, but yeah, it was a really, really well put together show. I mean, these were all seasoned writers, you know, Bob and David and, and Dino. Um, I mean, they were the main people running the room and they were just always striving to make it better. And an interesting thing about that show is stuff never really went away. If Bob and David were interested in an idea, um, it might go away for a few weeks, but it would come back I, and on mad TV. If you pitch something that didn't get on, yeah, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they you try to bring it up again, and they go, "Well, we passed on that. We don't want to think about that again." But um, since and it's also because Bob and David were the uh, they were also the main stars of the show, so there was sort of a linear integration. They were producing and writing and also acting, so they knew when something had a a, a valuable idea in it. And they would just set it aside and bring it back. Mm-hmm. That was a place where 
you know, ideas would go away and, and yet they'd still come back. Three or four episodes later, they go, hey, let's bring that idea back and, and work on it again. So, you know, which is nice. And I learned later that, uh, yeah, you you better pitch it the right way the first time if you're on Mad TV. Because right. if it gets passed, it's gone. <laughs> you got to wait a season or two and then bring it up, you know. Mr. Show famously had um, transitions between each sketch, or link linkage, at least, between each sketch. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember hearing from somewhere that those were, like, super hard to write at times. You know, it varied. Uh, yeah. There were there was one show that uh, I forget which episode it was in this in our season. The whole thing went together in about four hours. Like it just the whole show the the whole we well the way we'd start is we'd have a pile of sketches mm-hmm. and then we'd have a we'd write the name of the sketch on a a card and then we would have uh you know uh, we'd have three hundred one three hundred two three hundred three meaning first second third episode of the third season and then. Uh, you know Bob's opening Bob and David they would come out you know fake host the show that was part of the thing is they were a comedy team that would come out at the beginning and give sort of a fake hey we've got a great show you know it wasn't real it was like Rowan and Martin but you know they they would come out and do that so we'd we'd always be having subjects for that and so um, you'd look and we'd below that 303 we would have um, we'd line up the sketches and get the proper order um, try to put a big thing at the end and we'd have two live pieces and we'd try to space those out properly and then you'd sort of get the order of the show and then um, then it was let's figure out how to link the sketches from one to the next and um, we would try to always avoid a poster on the wall or coming out of a TV set or something like that um, sometimes the links became their own thing you know um, uh, the lie detector test um, I forget it was even coming out of her going into the little sticky pads that you use for uh, for lie detectors you know that, oh right yeah that became its own thing um, there there was this uh, these uh, uh, twin Asian girls who were in a sketch that Dino fell in love with I thought they were adorable and we ended up uh, and the joke was that uh, they they can say anything and it's it's adorable it doesn't matter and so they were like uh, go go tell Jay he's fired and they would they'd run over and go Jay Johnston you're fired and he'd go ah <laughs> and then Dino go no really you're fired and <laughs> and uh that was just a a joke around the set and then that became a link i believe uh it went from the lie detector somehow i think it went from the lie detector sketch to the uh the mobster sketch um the the we we did that specific link as a sketch of uh, the bad news twins, and then um, I think it went from that. I haven't watched these episodes in a long time, but it went from there to uh, them saying uh, "Vinny sleeps with the fishes" or something, right. which is the beginning of the uh, the mobster sketch where uh, was it twenty nine is the highest number or right, something? Yeah. 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 So uh, yeah, and the links sometimes they were their own thing, and sometimes it was just a really simple, easy thing that we were like, eh, okay, like the blowing up the moon sketch. Uh, from there, we we uh, we had a sketch. It was something that Brian Posehn wrote about a guy who uh, is the typical uh, "you're fired." He's firing people, and then um, uh, somebody speaks up and he goes, "You've got spunk. You're still fired." <laughs> and we just had the the moon blow up, and uh, somebody was looking out the window and, "Hey, look, sir, they did it. <laughs> what? They blew up the moon." He's like, "Is that an idea?" <laughs> 
No. Then he just shuts the shutters and then they sit down and it's the next sketch. So that was a really simple, easy link. Right. Um, sometimes they're really easy like that. Like that didn't take any time at all. Uh, and sometimes they, we, you just slave over them. You know, it would take forever. So one show went together in like four hours. And I remember there was another one that was like took two days. Wow. And it was just endless, you know. Um, yeah. Um, really is weird though because a lot of people have done a lot of analysis in in terms of uh, themes and and links and how there's you know one thing led to the next and how thematically this matters and a lot of it is just kind of speculation after the fact right a lot of that stuff we I don't think we intended we were just literally trying to figure out a way to link the sketches in a smooth way Mm -hmm. but I think sometimes people analyzed it yeah when this is your like first TV writing job, and it like goes so well, and you're working with people like you really respect and you like, do you do you think that like every show is going to be like this? Um, I knew that it was a much different show than anything on television. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel that I was extremely lucky that my first two jobs were like the best jobs in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, Mr. Show was uh, creatively you could not ask for a better show. It was um different and funny and you you never you would hand your work to bob and david and it never got worse it always got better they would always elevate whatever it is you wrote and the same thing on the the chris rock show that was the second job i had um wonderful really great people to work with and um it it was uh always good the 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 show was really good and smart and so, yeah, I was kind of spoiled after those first two shows. But I knew, I knew that this wasn't typical, mm-hmm. you know. And so, uh, I had hoped that maybe I'd get. I've, so I've never had as satisfying as, as an experience as working on those first two shows. I don't professionally. I don't think I've had anything that was quite as satisfying as, as both mm-hmm. of those. Yeah. Uh, how'd you get the Chris Rock show job? Let's see. Um, I uh, I had cycled through a couple of agents. Like I, I'd never, somebody said while I was on Mr. Show, get an agent now because you're working. And uh, once you're not working, it's much, much harder to get a job, an agent. And so um, I tried. I had a couple interviews and I didn't get an agent. Um, and I floated around a little bit. I talked to, I got turned down by like three or four after Mr. Show even. Because remember at the time, Mr. Show was a small not very well known show. Right. Um, we got nominated for uh, an Emmy a couple times. Um, should have won, um, but didn't. Um, Do you remember who you lost to? Yes, uh, <laughs> Eddie Izzard. I lost to Eddie Izzard. Oh, uh, uh, Mr. Show. Um, like a stand-up special. Yeah, that was weird. He was in the same category. He had a stand-up. I think variety. they've changed that now to where it's yeah. sketch shows. Yeah. And it's funny. I met him uh, several years later. Um, and I introduced myself and said, uh, I told him that we were in the same category and that he stole Miami. <laughs> and uh, he chuckled nervously. And, uh, didn't, I don't know. I think he thought it was kind of funny, but at the same time, he was like, who's this guy? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, Eddie Izzard. And then um, I think the next season, uh, Dennis Miller won oh, a whole wow. bunch of sketch. He won that category like four or five times. Wow, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the thing is, is that there was SNL, there was uh, mm-hmm. so many other great things, but Ben, St- but uh, 
Um, Dennis Miller uh, won several times, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And then the following year, uh, the Chris Rock show won in that, that category. So I was lucky enough to be on the staff then, so mm-hmm. we all got an Emmy. And so how, how did that job actually come about? Oh, uh, well, um, I'd met with several agents. I'd met with a guy at Writers and Artists, and he was one of the few people who actually talked about my work. There was a sketch that he loved called Lousy Lawyer that was not really that great, but he liked it a lot. And um, he had read my, I had a Fraser spec, and he thought, yeah, this is all right, you know. And Fraser, by the way, I don't know if you heard, it's it's being rebooted perhaps. I just saw that, yeah. So that spec, dust, dust it off. Yes, absolutely. Switch out a home phone for iPhone, and it'll be good to go. <laughs> absolutely, just have him uh, surfing the net or something. <laughs> yeah. I'd have to look back. I don't even know if I have it anymore. Um, but yeah, so, uh, he, um, basically it was like several other meetings I'd had, you know, it was just, it was nice, maybe a little nicer cause he, he, he was glowing about that one piece. And then, um, about three or four weeks went by and, uh, he just called me out of the blue and said, Hey, you know, uh, I just heard that the Chris Rock show was looking for writers. Um, you know, big question. Would you like to move to New York? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm packing my bags right now. Um, and he said, well, you know, wait, hold on. Let's uh, got to come up with a submission. So I wrote a submission. Um, and then somebody, uh, Nina Rosenstein, who's one of the exec producers on the show, came, had had came to L.A. And uh, I met with her. There was Louis Anderson was doing a show at the time. It was a stand-up show. And HBO Downtown was also producing that. So she had to come and, you know, do some business there. And so I met with her um, in L.A. And then... Everything seemed to be going well, and then I got another call from uh, one of the producers. Just said, you know, we want to see stuff that's specifically more for uh, the Chris Rock show. I was like, oh, okay. So I wrote something about reverse discrimination, and I wrote uh, I'd already written some stuff that was kind of Chris Rock like, um, but I just wrote another submission. So I'd written like three submissions by that point, mm-hmm. and uh, I guess that one sealed it. Um, I felt like I had a good submission in mm-hmm. that, and. Um, yeah, then then uh, got the call and uh, um, I had an agent briefly. He left the business like not too long after that. Mm-hmm. I haven't had good agent luck. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that's good luck that I got that guy. But um, then he left the business like about three weeks after I won an Emmy. Was, <laughs> yeah, I was like, said I'm tired of this business and uh, this big rant against Hollywood, and I was like. I'm in a little different spot right now. I'm, <laughs> I'm feeling actually okay about the business. I, I just won an Emmy, so I'm, I'm hoping maybe... You could do some work for me. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I ended up with another guy that wasn't... He was kind of a knucklehead and then uh, jumped around a little bit. Was with ICM for briefly and then CAA for a bit. And it um, just uh, ended up just without an agent. Mm-hmm. I kind of told those agents, thanks, but I'm just going to kind of be on my own be my own thing for a while. How, how do you choose an agent? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know if it's about choosing. Uh, right. <laughs> well, it's, it's, um, you know, like right after I won the Emmy, there were agents calling me. Um, but it only lasts. If you've got heat on you, that's such an elusive thing. Um, it's literally only a month or so where they're until they're like, well, you know, what have you done for me lately? And then they kind of, they stop calling and, and uh, that was the thing is that they had pushed so hard to get me as a client. And then I was over there and um, I recall at the beginning of staffing season, I said, you know, I, I think I could get on Mad TV. I'm pretty sure. 
I'd met with them and it, you know, I just had to, I went back to the Chris Rock show cause Chris Rock show wanted to keep me on. And I said, I could probably get on that. And, but I really don't. That's the last thing I want to do. I want to, I have a lot of other things I want to do. And I told my hopes and dreams and the entire season went by. And then I got a call. Hey, what about Matt TV? And I realized, Oh, for him, it's just, he makes one phone call and he's done with me. He doesn't want to have to build a career. It's like, right. you know, he doesn't want to have to do those things. So he just went for the sure deal. And so I, I realized that agents are there to, to negotiate deals. And sometimes they're there to facilitate, but rarely, and they don't spend a lot of time building the career. You have to really do a lot of it yourself. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten most of my jobs through contacts that I've already had. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah. How, how did uh, the Chris Rock writers room differ from the Mr. Show writer room? Uh, we didn't meet as often. Chris was off doing a lot of stuff. Um, I wrote monologue for the Chris Rock show where we didn't have that on, on Mr. Show. Mm-hmm. That was just a different experience of writing jokes. Um, how do you how do you approach writing a monologue joke? Well, initially, I wasn't very good. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I wasn't fast. I had I would write good jokes, but it took me forever because I was sitting there and I would. We'd have four newspapers delivered to our door at our offices. And uh, so I'd sit there. It'd be USA Today, New York Times, um, LA Times, and something else. And where I'd look through, and I'd, I'd, I'd come to a story, and I'd look at it, and I'd go, there's nothing funny here. And I'd flip through and find another story, and ah, there's nothing funny there either. And then I'd come up with jokes, but not very many, like uh, not as many as I'd hoped. And uh, I didn't feel my productivity was very good. And my office mate, Tom Agna, who was always, uh, I, I was a big fan of his. The, the stand-up comedians in Las Vegas idolized him. Um, he was like one of those, he had always had good material and he had a really cool shtick, you know. And um, he said, uh, here's what you do. Uh, don't write the setup and the punchline at the same time. Um, he said, come in first and write setups. Just try to write the perfect setup. Look at the story and go, all right, what's the setup for the story? And then move on. Don't try to work on the punchline at the same time because you're doing two things at once. Mm-hmm. And um, it really made a big difference. You know, I'd, I'd come up and I'd, I'd come in in the morning and I'd write 15 or 20 setups and then I'd go clear my head. And I also learned as, as a not a coffee drinker, uh, I learned that if you drink a cup of coffee, man, it really makes you talkative and you, you write more jokes. So mm-hmm. that was became my ritual. I would write setups all morning. I'd go get a cup of coffee and then I'd come back and sit down and start. I'd just look at the setup and then try to, you know, and, and uh, hopefully I'd get struck by lightning and boom, the punchline would hit. Um, I was never a very formulaic writer. It's just, for me, it was just look at the punchline or look at the setup and then something would happen eventually. And uh, I like tripled my productivity just by doing that, just by dividing the setups and the punchlines. Um, I think at late night shows now they have someone else do the setups and like send it out each morning to the writers. That, yeah. Um, in fact, uh, SNL did, did that at the time. Um, our writer's assistant somehow had a line into the SNL people. He knew an intern over there. And so he got their setups. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I was like, oh, man, those guys got it easy, you know, because I'm looking <laughs> at the setups and it was a lot easier because you, then you just start looking at setups and you'd be able to boom, boom, you know, come up with punchlines faster. But uh yeah, we wrote our own setups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was it like, uh, like writing for Chris Rock? 
It was great. He was uh, he was a writer already for many years. You know, he'd written on In Living Color and SNL, and so I, I feel like as a writer, he knew how to put together a good room that was condu- conducive to a good comedy writing, and um, they paid attention to the right things. Like, it didn't really matter if you came in at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You know, it didn't matter. It was like, no one's watching. Um, you you weren't, but the, where they paid attention was, uh, are you pitching funny stuff? That was the important thing. Are you productive and pitching good things? Um, you could, there was this wonderfully comfortable couch there. Um, and uh, you could take a nap in the middle of the day and nobody would care, <laughs> you know? Um, and... You know, uh, it was this hallway with a bunch of different offices and it was kind of a dream job. You just walk next door to your office mate and try to bust them up and, you know, pitch your ideas or vice versa. Um, when I was at, I had a corner office with Tom Agna and that just seemed to be a place where people congregated. So we would always have people coming in and pitching their material and it was a lot of fun. Just, it was, couldn't be a more fun job. And, uh. Chris was there uh, a lot, uh, but he was also away a lot. He worked a lot of hours. And so uh, our pitches, we didn't pitch as much. Um, but so we would pitch maybe once a week at the Chris Rock show, whereas at uh, Mr. Show, we would pitch two to three times a week. Mm-hmm. Well, at least for the first few weeks. Th- then when Bob and David were shooting, it was different. They were out shooting stuff. And um, so we had them less. And we had to do our own stuff. It was a lot of times it was when Dina was available because Dina was also producing. So he was often out as well. It was just sort of, you know, we would sit around and um, Bob and David had to be there for the stuff to get through. So it was a bit of a bottleneck when the, when the show started um, shooting because Bob and David weren't there as much. And, it, you know, that show was their baby. So it was hard for them to let everybody write without them in the room. And, um, I remember once we were uh, supposed to, uh, they were trying to get more productive. So they gave five of us one episode and said, okay, uh, let's figure out this episode. And we're going to go in the other room. Bob and Dave, we're going to go in the other room and then work on their episode. And so Bob and David came in and they're like, okay, so here's the uh, pieces. And they put them up and they said, okay, you're going to find the links. Well, what's the link for the first one? And uh, we're like, okay, guys, we're, we're, we're good. We know. I'm like, all right. And then so Bob leaves and then David comes back in the room and goes, oh, wait. Uh, also, make sure on this sketch something, something. And we go, okay, we got it. And then they'd leave and then Bob would come back in and go, uh, yeah, I was thinking about something else. It was really hard for them to not <laughs> be in the room, you know. Yeah. And um, so, you know, you, you had to – it just became harder when Bob and Dave were off shooting because they, you know, they had to be there for the material. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, Difference between Chris Rock Show and Mr. Show. Um, we didn't meet as often. Um, the, the general mood was a little less stressed out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know why. It was maybe a little more comfortable uh, production schedule. Um, the sketches, it was more of an in-studio show, so there wasn't a lot of location stuff. There mm. was, it was, Mr. Show was underfunded and they had a lot of more elaborate ambitious sketches whereas the Chris Rock show was well funded and it was more of a traditional talk show where we'd do remotes and things like that but it would never be 
we had to do locations inside of a house or inside of a school or, you know, uh, crowds and stuff like that. It was the sketches were much more simple. Um, so there was a lot less stress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the main difference between uh, Mr. Show and the Chris Rock Show. Chris Rock Show was a relaxed, fun job, um, whereas Mr. Show was a stressful, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, pressure, a lot of pressure <laughs> on, on Mr. Show. It was a blast. I enjoyed it. I'd never traded in for anything, but it was a much more stressful show. Right. Yeah. So af- after Chris Rock, is that when you start working at uh, Mad TV? Um, I worked on a show called The Downer Channel. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's uh, Steve Martin. Yeah, Steve Martin, uh, exec produced it. And um, that was uh, that was the opposite of the Chris Rock show and and uh, Mister Show. In that, um, Steve Martin was the exec producer, but he was kind of uh, dabbling. You know, it was he came in and directed a sketch. He wrote a couple things and submitted them. And then we were on our own, you know. Um, and the show was really being run by like 20 producers from NBC. Like there was, a, we, as the writers, we didn't meet very many of them. Um, Steve O'Donnell was the head writer of that show. And so he was the one who had to deal with all those producers. And so we would just sit in our offices and come up with stuff. And um, but then Steve would it would be really great stuff, and then Steve would go away and have a meeting and come back, and he'd be all kind of sweaty and like he'd just been worked over. And he, okay, guys, here's what got cut, you know. And all the good stuff would go, and then there'd be other things that were like, oh, that one, well, all right. And um, the show didn't have a vision. That was the problem with with the Downer Channel is that it was initially sold as a sketch show, but at the time. Um, reality was this new buzzword mm. and it was like oh reality sketch reality and so I remember um, early on they were saying our sketch is it's going to be 60% sketch and 40% reality and then it became 50-50 and then it became 60% reality and 40% sketch wow. and then it was just like well, nobody knew what it was and we would get assignments like uh, this is like a typical producer driven thing um, some producers said, go get a crew down to the third street promenade and ask regular people. So that's the reality part. You just okay. ask people, you know, go and get interviews with regular old people walking around on third street promenade and uh, ask him what their worst experience was, you know? And so we get these, uh, kind of guarded and, um, uptight people of, you know, various places. A uh, universal city walk was another one. They just go there with a camera and uh, you ever get a root canal? Oh, I had a root canal. It was terrible. You know, um, had a explosive diarrhea once, you know, that's about as funny as it got. You know, like, <laughs> and then they would, they'd say, here's that. Now let's get the, get the writers to come up with some really amazing stuff from that. And it's going to be great. You know, it's reality. And it's also, you know, we've got this, the writers working on stuff and it just ended up being a huge waste of time. Right. <laughs> we would just, uh, look at the stuff and I came up with a few things. We all, came up with stuff that kind of was reacting to these non-actors who weren't telegenic or funny. Um, (laughs) And we would find pieces that we could sort of make into comedy, you know, but um, that was a very, an unsatisfying job. And that Mm -hmm. um, creatively all the good stuff, I have a lot of sketches that I still cherish that I pitched on that show and it didn't get made. Um, and then I ended up pitching on other shows. I think I might have gotten a couple made since then, but uh, it was just a lot of uh, a lot of work 
an effort that seemed to be going nowhere. And um, then the show, we did six episodes, and they aired, I think, three of them. And then they, they we got beat by, uh, remember the show JAG? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the military lawyers or something? <laughs> yeah. Um, we got um, beat in the ratings by JAG, a JAG rerun. Wow. Yeah, so they didn't even air the last three. And it was really a disappointment because I was so excited. You know, Steve Martin's producing, and this is going to be great. And I met Steve Martin. It was it was cool, you know. Um and um, I, he sent something in. I, he, I submitted a sketch, and he, from his palatial estate somewhere, um, <laughs> looked at it and, and gave some ideas on it. And so I'm like, I co-wrote a sketch with Steve Martin. That yeah. is awesome, you know. And so that was a, a nice experience. Um, but he uh, he showed up a few times. We didn't get to see him very much. There was a guy that looked just like him that was a location manager. Same hair wore baseball caps and wore a blazer like he did. And so we were constantly having Steve Martin alerts. Like, you know, we'd somebody, t- oh, I just saw Steve Martin. He's in there. He's in the building. You know, we'd all straighten up and make sure we look nice. And we realized it's that, damn, it's that location manager. He really looked like him. Like he had to turn, he'd have to see his face to know it's not him. He wore uh, tennis shoes with a uh, blazer and, and jeans, just like Steve Martin did. I almost thought that it was his, his body double that he did that just to keep us on our toes or something. But, um, yeah, and it was a great, great staff, great people on the, um, great actors. Wanda Sykes was writing for it. Um, just it was fun, mm-hmm. but ultimately it was like not nearly as uh, cool or exciting as uh, the first two jobs mm-hmm. I had. When 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 a show ends uh, and you don't have a job lined up, what do you what what are you doing in between to get a job? Um. Well. You know, it's, I, I try to stay in touch with all the people I know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, not um, go out to shows and such and just kind of be part of the scene. Um, my thing that I I always try to do is I always try to have a project that's my own thing. So mm-hmm. if I have a job, I save up the money from the job. And when I get a break, I, uh, I do some kind of a project, some video project. What I was doing at the time, I had this show, it was a web show called Power Loafing. Power Loafing with Cubicle Carl. And um, it was, uh, I actually had sold that project to a thing called pop.com in the year 2000. And uh, that folded and never went anywhere. And it was, when I went into pitch to them, they said, uh, it was the year 2000. So they said, we need something that uh, can be watched at work because that's the people who have high speed. Everybody else had dial up. Um, for our young listeners, that means uh, you, your, your dial-up phone, which is a thing that actually plugged into the wall, um, you'd plug that in and you'd have a modem and it was super slow and you couldn't see video. You could only see pictures and it was a drag. So, so it was supposed to be for people at work and it was also, um, what else? It had to be a brief, you know, only five minutes and it had to be uh, not too high production. Like it didn't, couldn't be too ambitious or, or big. And so... I went and just thought up this idea called Power Loafing with Cubicle Carl. And it was it took place in one cubicle and it was about a guy who never worked at this, you know, uh office and uh he would sit in his cubicle and goof off and then various middle managers would come up and try to give him work and he'd always get out of it and then the big boss, played by Ron Lynch, would uh thought he was the best worker he had. And that was the mm-hmm. setup. And um I sold it to that pop dot com and they went under and I bought it back and did it in my living room. For that was the my project for uh, about eight years. I just 
When yeah. I wasn't working, I would do another episode of Power Loafing. And uh, we ended up doing like 19, 20 episodes. And uh, you can still find them on Vimeo. There's a couple on YouTube and a couple on Vimeo. Um, I really loved it. And, you know, I got to work with uh, Neil Patrick Harris, who's in an episode. I got Brian Persane in an episode. I got um, Jay Johnston in an episode. Um, you know, and I feel like that's that's a way to keep busy. And I realized actors were really excited about it. You know, like, <clears throat> even though it was just, you know, this dumb little project I was doing in my living room, I actually had fake fluorescent lights glued to my ceiling <laughs> to, to make the set work. And then I had mirrors at the tops of the walls to make it look like it was a big ceiling spreading out. And, uh, yeah, people, uh, actors would be like, oh, that looks great. Uh, I'd be glad to do an episode. Um, and so, you know, that's how I kept busy, um, in between jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was fun and it was, I, I feel like I still kept my, uh, my toe in the water, you know, like, um, people say, so what are you doing? And I would have an answer. Oh, I'm working on this thing. It's called power loafing. It's really cool. People will accept that as a, oh, that seems like a job. Mm -hmm. Even though I was spending my own money on it, it was creative and fun. And I was working with uh, really fun people, um, really good actors and, and, and writers. And, uh, you know, when I have this body of work now of, from that show that I'm really proud of. Mm -hmm. So after after Downer Channel, you started working at Mad TV. Yeah. And that was a time when there was like a lot of talent at Mad TV at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Great writing staff, uh, Rich Tallarico, Tammy Seger, mm-hmm. uh, gosh, who else? Um, Will Sasso was on at that point. Um, yeah, um, trying to think. It was great. Um, as a job, it was fine. Mm-hmm. I didn't really survive there very well. Yeah, you know, I didn't feel as, um, I didn't feel like my work was as appreciated there as it was at Mister Show and at, at the Chris Rock Show. Um, I felt like more of a, you know, cog in a wheel sort of, mm. um, and I didn't get as much on, but one of the reasons that I realized it was, it was just basic geography. I was at the far end of the hallway and the, uh, the main, the main producers, the writer producers were all the way at the other end. I was at the, at the, I couldn't have been further away from those people. And I realized that the other new writers who were down the hallway and around the corner, um, we're getting far more stuff on because they just come out of their office and pitch to the people who <laughs> made the decisions. And so that I realized, oh, I better, you know, hoof it down to the end of the hallway and maybe pitch my ideas to some of the other, you know, writer producers. And the only things I got on were exactly those pieces. Um, again, uh, you know, kind of like uh, the Downer Channel, I just I pitched a lot of really cool ideas that um, never got on. Um, it feels like <clears throat> Matt TV specifically was more of a like a of a cruder shockier version of like SNL. Yeah, or more of a um adolescent version. The adolescent, yeah. Yeah, like it's a lot of stuff um they had this three ring notebook and anybody who wrote in emails either praising or uh knocking the show, they would put it in that notebook and we can go in and just see lately, you know what people are saying and you could tell a lot of the people who love the show were like 11 or 12 years old. You know, <laughs> the stuff was misspelled. And, um, and a lot of the people who hated it 
were clearly a little bit older because their stuff had good spelling and <laughs> you know like they they were made succinct points about it and um but yeah there were a lot of characters there like uh stewie remember that character stewart stewie yeah, yeah. yeah um that's clearly a a character for a, a kid you know that's right um so yeah and you know you talk talking about batting average they did some really good sketches on mad tv i i would never write off that entire show there were some excellent pieces like if you went through and just cherry picked, you, you could put together a great show. But then there were also, you know, um, some not so great things. Right. And so, you know, I always just try to take the good and forget the bad stuff. You know, they but they did some really funny stuff. They did some Dolomite. Uh, they had a Dolomite sketch that was kind of recurring. Hmm. What was the Mrs. Swan? You know, that was. Uh, oh yeah. You could not do that now. Um, yeah, a lot of stuff from Mad TV those days you couldn't do anymore. Yeah, uh, yeah, Mrs. Swan is absolutely would not be able to do that anymore. Um, what else? I feel like they had like a, a blackface. Maybe I'm wrong. I think someone did blackface or someone did something racially insensitive. I don't know. Yeah, you know, um, I'm really happy that I've never really pitched any of that kind of stuff. I always just kind of felt it was a little bit hacky, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, there's there were a lot of things like that. Um, I remember on Mr. Show there was something that um, we had a sketch that was let's see it was something about David's uh, racist grandma and she made some she had a racist jelly that she made and um, we wrote we wrote it and we were all laughing and stuff and there was a point where David went yeah you know what I don't I don't think I want to do this yeah (laughs) you know (laughs) And uh, I totally credit him for for saying that, you know, because so many other uh, lesser writers would have went, hey, why can't we do this? Let's do it, you know. And uh, that would have been a sketch that probably would have made people wince, mm. you know. Um, yeah. But comedy is always like the first thing that starts to look dated. So it, it's, yeah. it's not surprising that um, now that everyone's much woker, I guess, there's uh, a lot of comedy that doesn't come off well. Yeah, I mean, like we're talking just a couple of days after all that tweet stuff happened with uh, James Gunn, yeah, and those guys. Yeah, I mean, it's it seems like there's something like that happens on a regular basis now, where something somebody did a few years ago is kind of brought back, and they're like, "How dare you!" Right. Um. You know, I. I I have mixed feelings. Um, it's overall, it's a great thing, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't subscribe to the theory that you just can't do these great jokes that you used to be able to do anymore, you know, because uh, audiences are just too uh, uptight. And <clears throat> but I don't agree with that. Like with stand-up, um, audiences really sucked in the eighties. They, you could just <laughs> you could go do you could do homophobic material, and be guaranteed to get laughs. Um, if in the eighties, uh, I don't see why any Asian person would ever go into a, uh, like a, a comedy room, you know, like a, to any kind of comedy show. Cause it was just a regular staple, terrible jokes about Asians. Um, I mean, uh, you take Andrew Dice Clay or, uh, you know, um, any of those big, big comics, you know, uh, there are pieces of their act that just, do not hold up. Right. Um, yeah. Sam Kennison is also. And the thing is, is like, none of that stuff is really that good. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, like, uh, so 
you know, is our audience is worse? No, I think they're, it's just a little more difficult. You don't have these stock type things that you can do. I think they, it's, people get carried away. I think people go after comics way faster than they do anybody else. And now it's almost like if you talk about a difficult subject, they'll go after you. And it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, what is, what's the intent of the comic? Um, but overall it's good. It just, you have to be more on your toes as a, as a comic. You have to be able to, uh, you can't do just blatant racist stuff anymore. And that's a good thing. Right. Just for the shock value. You know I mean? Shock humor. I've never been a big fan of shock humor anyway. Um, I mean, if it's good, it's, it's wonderful. You know, if it's, if it's shocking and also, um, interesting and surprising, great. But shock for just shock value does not work on me anymore. Right. You know, maybe when I was a kid. Um, but, uh, yeah, overall, I think it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And so you now, uh, currently teach at the pack theater. You teach a a sketch class there. Mm -hmm. Uh, how'd you get started with that? Um, well, you know, I, I did my master's thesis on sketch comedy and while I was there at UNLV, I was teaching and I really enjoyed it. I taught public speaking and, um, I'd always wanted to come back and do teaching and I had bumped into Sam Brown, and he was teaching. And I was—I I mentioned to him, I said, "Well, that's great. I would love to do a sketch show." And then Sam uh, talked to Eric Money Penny, and uh, I had, um, saw him sort of uh, at the pack. I was going to see a lot of pack stuff. A lot of talented people at the pack. It's kind of the new UCB Groundlings. Um, it's like if you want to find a place where it's a good atmosphere and there are dedicated funny people who are really just doing it to do it the pack is the place and so i was already a fan of the pack and um i just had the opportunity um to teach and so i took the historical stuff from my thesis and i made that the first couple sessions it's an eight session course and then i also talk about things that uh I i go over the history of sketch comedy i talk about um british music hall and minstrel z and um, burlesque and vaudeville and Broadway Review, and then going into radio, you know, and starting in the 1920s, uh, all the vaudeville people just went into radio. Mm-hmm. You know, all those early radio shows were, you know, vaudeville performers. Um, and then those same performers um, went from uh, vaudeville uh, to radio and then ultimately into TV. Pretty much, you name any great comedian from the 20th century. Um, early 20th century. They were all from Broadway mm-hmm. or from uh, burlesque, vaudeville, variety theater. So that's, you know, sketch comedy is really the place to start. Right. And even now, you know, you look at the great people who we think of as, as our, our great comedians, Tina Fey, Steve Carell, uh, Stephen Colbert, um, just go down the list. They all started in sketch. Mm-hmm. They all started in Chicago, uh, you know, um, in you know the groundlings um it's just really it's where it's the best most uh pure form of comedy and that's usually where we get our comedians mm-hmm. and you, you mentioned uh your sketch class that you teach is like completely different from probably any sketch class in america probably because it's, it's got the historical background with like practical tv tips as well yeah um well, it's yeah. There's the historical part, and I try to just tie that all in and and bring it from, you know. Actually, I start in um, ancient Greece. You know, um, we talk. I show a clip from uh, uh, Monty Python's uh, Life of Brian, which is actually very well researched historically. 
um, if you listen to the uh, to the extras on the DVD, um, they did a lot of research. And my theory, what I came up with in my thesis, was that um, sketch comedy probably originated in the uh, open air markets in the uh, city states in the old world. You know, like outside of uh, Rome, um, there were these open air markets where people would uh, trade things, like um, you know the haggle sketch. You know where you mm-hmm. Eric Idle and uh, Graham Chapman are there, and uh, they're trying tells them to haggle. That's a great sketch. That area there, that open air market where they are, is probably where sketch comedy originated. In another scene, you see the uh, prophets. They're all you've got this one prophet, and he's kind of fuzzy, and then you've got another prophet who all, who's all fire and brimstone. That's exactly what it was. It was people they would get up on a little platform and they'd stand there and they'd either talk philosophy or politics, or they'd just joke around. It's probably where stand up comedy originated. And you know anybody that uh, had an inclination to do uh, comedy like a double act, they would do it there. And uh, they'd have like pottery sitting out in front of them, like a hat you would have. They're basically like buskers. And since you were in the open air market, people would be there. They'd have extra money. They could toss a coin in. So you could make money there. You could also promote your uh, your comedy that was taking place later in the night, you know, um, in the amphitheaters. Um, you know, like, for instance, Rome had um, giant, it had the Colosseum, it had uh, places, uh, big theaters where they put on big lavish productions, um, and those we have extant copies. We have the scripts, you right. know, because serious theater was taken seriously, whereas sketch comedy has never really been taken seriously. So my theory is that we don't have any of the works left anymore, um, but definitely sketch comedy took place in the smaller venues mm-hmm. and probably started in the open air markets and moved into the city in the smaller venues and. Uh, I think if you have a city of a million, uh, that is enough to have dedicated people who are just doing comedy. And so, you know, basically about 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, we started having cities with a million people. Also, my other theory is that 100,000 people is enough to have people who can do it. Right. But to have dedicated people who it's their job, you need, you know, more than a half a million, a million people. So my theory is that sketch comedy uh, has been around for a few thousand years. Mm-hmm. That they were definitely doing sketch comedy in Alexandria, Egypt. We don't have copies of the sketches, but it was definitely happening. Mm-hmm. And do do you enjoy teaching this class? I do. Yeah, I I, I enjoy it a lot. Um, also because it gives me a chance to um, interact with uh, you know really uh, dedicated uh, young sketch people, and um, you know I was really pleasantly surprised by I've directed a few of the sketch troops um, and you know I've, I've, t- I've been teaching the class now for a year and um, I feel like the the level of work is is excellent it's better than you would have 20 years ago you know probably and a lot of the stuff that I had to learn I had to write a thesis to learn a lot of the concepts that I was teaching in a class um, but the students already have an awareness of a lot of that stuff because it's, you know, Eric Moneypenny, that kind of stuff is around more. The, uh, all the books that I read, there are more books have come out since. Um, there's an awareness, you know, um, what I call the premise is called the game, you know? Um, so there's an awareness of all those concepts, um, that just wasn't there. You had to go to new to, uh, Chicago really, and go to Second City if you wanted to learn those concepts. 
in LA, it was not quite so much. Mm-hmm. Improv has changed. It just gotten better. You know, it used to be you'd have people go, uh, give us a occupation and, uh, you know, it's, you know, a name and a, you know, a location. And then that was sketch comedy, but, and that was improv. But now you have, um, you know, improvised movies, you know, and, um, the Herald is just in a kind of a cool innovation. And those skills are really applicable. You know, when I did my pilot recently, um, it just seemed like a natural to, to go to the pack. And, you know, we needed a lot of people who could act and, um, work within a group and, um, and it was great. There's probably like 15 people in this pilot that I'm working on now mm-hmm. that are from the pack. And, um, they did a great job. And can we talk about like a little bit about the pilot, just like green screen stuff or, or not? Oh, sure. Yeah. So you, you, you're, you're now working on this green screen pilot. Yeah. Uh, what gave you the idea to start doing that? Well, um, about 2010, I think I was, uh, goofing around with green screen. Um, I was broke at the time and didn't really have any money to do more ambitious stuff. So I just, in my living room there was putting up a green screen and goofing around. I think, uh, what did I start with? Um, I, uh, I think I started with, uh, I wanted, I was trying to, uh, Oh no. Uh, I watched the Beatles. Um, all you need is love that video. And I put myself in that goofing around in the background, just screwing around. And, uh, that was kind of successful. It got a lot of views. And then I got, uh, I got a takedown notice from, uh, um, Apple core. And so I was like, okay, so I moved it over to, um, to Vimeo. And then I got another takedown notice from, um, EMI. (laughs) So I was sued by the Beatles. Um, and I got a lot, I got like a couple hundred thousand views pretty quickly, mostly because of the Beatles. Um, but so I did that and that was kind of cool and everybody liked it. And, um, so I, uh, put myself on the Zapruder film trying to save JFK and, uh, that people liked that. And I put myself trying to kill Hitler. Um, I found some footage of Hitler and I'm standing there and I'm going to, I, start to try with a, I try to stab him first. And then this security guard keeps coming up and stopping me. And, uh, that was pretty fun. And then I had this idea. Uh, so as I was doing that kind of stuff, I saw, um, an old dragnet episode It's called blue boy. And it was about LSD. It's a pretty well-known episode. And I remember I was watching it and thinking, Hey, you know, uh, there's, I could put myself, there was one particular shot where I thought, I could put myself in there and I'd be like right there with um, Jack Webb and uh, yeah, that would be pretty cool. And then the idea just exploded and I ended up writing like a 35 page pilot that involved all that. And ultimately I thought I need a real actor because it's, it can't just be me goofing around. This is like real scenes involving stuff. And um, I had worked with Chris Fairbanks a couple years earlier in this thing called Lake Charles Lake that the fun bunch had done. And, uh, he just struck me as being really good at playing that kind of role. And so I called him out of the blue and he went, yeah, okay, sure. And we did one scene. The first scene we did was an interrogation scene and it was so damn funny and weird that, uh, after that we had no problem getting any other actors. They were like, I just sent him a link and they go, Oh yeah, I'll be in that. That looks cool. And so we got some really funny people in that. And so that kind of started it. Um, 
So, you know, I had another idea. I had a couple of Tom Cruise movies that I was messing with. And uh, I thought, well, I got to get Chris Fairbanks in this. And um, the second one we did was we took the movie uh, Cocktail and we just turned it into, into its own story where Chris is this kind of a fifth wheel who's trying to get into a business with uh, Tom Cruise and uh, Brian Brown, those those two actors. Um, and it really worked well. Like it was surprisingly the story worked well as its own story, like apart from the movie. And uh, that just a lot of people saw that. Like it got a couple hundred, maybe 150,000 views, but so many of them were in LA. Like everyone I knew saw it. I'd never had anything like that happen where I'd just be walking around and people would come up and go, hey, I saw that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, from there I came up with a pitch. The weird thing is that um, it wasn't really what I was planning to do. I was just too broke to produce the uh, pilots that I'd written. Because <laughs> I'd written other pilots that I wanted to do, but they were just, the production was too much. Like it, I needed crowds. I needed... Uh, you know, city streets, I needed locations. And I was like, this is just going to be too much. You know, this is going to be $20,000. Whereas the uh, cocktail thing cost about 500 bucks. We just paid for, you know, the food and, um, a little bit for location. Um, I worked at a theater so we could use that, um, pretty cheaply. And, um, it just ended up, that became my thing because, I couldn't really afford to do anything else. And so um, we've this, this latest thing is it's, it's a continuation. We, this is a 22 minute uh, really ambitious piece where we took an old Jack Nicholson movie um, and stuck new actors in it. We, it's a biker movie. It's basically a parody of the biker movies pre uh, uh, easy rider, um, the antihero um, movies that they did. In the starting in the late fifties into the late sixties, um, they did a few in the seventies, but the, the heyday was in the sixties where it was these are bad people, and usually the main character dies or everyone dies in some fiery explosion, or they go to jail or they get shot or something. It's it's you know, and there were some atrocious films. Um, Peter Fonda is in several of them, <laughs> and um, like Easy Rider is the one everybody knows him from, but. Uh, he did a what the hell was it? Hell's Angels, six, no, uh, the Hell's Angels I think is one he did. He did like three of them and they were awful, like just not just awful but reprehensible, <laughs> like no moral, <laughs> no moral center. You know, right. like you're watching, you're going, I, there's nobody here that I can like. You know, there's, these are all bad people, and um, that was the thing. You know, like uh, swastikas everywhere, and you're watching it going, this is like. 20 years after the war this is like less than 20 years in some cases they're just they're all wearing german helmets and and they got swastikas on you know german luftwaffe eagles on their jackets you know and it's like huh and i think it was just you know it was rebellion it was just trying to get a rise out of people you know um but uh yeah like uh there's this one film i forget what it is it's one of the peter fonda ones where uh someone's sexually assaulting somebody um in a scene and another person walks in and just goes, <laughs> and walks out. Jesus. And the whole thing continues. And then that person who was doing the sexual assaulting, just later on in a the scene, there's no, nobody comments about it. And uh, they don't seemingly pay for their crimes in any way. It was just like one of those things. 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of those kind of movies that are pretty bad. But, but you know, if we sell this, that's we're going to go after those kind of films, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but that, that, that's what this is. It's, it's called uh, Freeway to Hell. And it's uh, 22 minutes. And it, I'm really proud of it. It's, uh, it's really, it's one of the coolest things I've done. Yeah, you sent me a link and, and I think it's great. And what, what's oh, so interesting you. is you mentioned with the cocktail one, I think even more specifically with this one, is that it's so, um, you don't need to know anything about the original film. Are you, it's just its own story, which is really impressive. Yeah, we, we're we making fun of an entire category of movies. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that specific movie. It's, it's the anti-hero biker film from the 60s. And it's, uh, it's pretty convincing. We take, there's actually five different movies that we use. Um, three of them are in the public domain. And uh, two of them you'd hope don't notice. <laughs> yeah, two of them, are, I don't want to say what they are, but... The, <laughs> We used the backgrounds from Star Wars one, Star Wars two, maybe. Um, But yeah, so uh, we um, it's very it's it's pretty funny and and we kind of stick to our um, we adhere to the parody. It really feels like a period piece too. It doesn't. There's so many period pieces that people make nowadays, and it's just people dressing up. But it really feels like it's from the era. Um, So we're pretty hopeful about it. We've we have a company that's interested and. Um, we have a couple of kind of sort of, uh, influential people who are, uh, excited about it. And, uh, we're hoping, you know, fingers crossed that we can get this, uh, get this set up somewhere. What would you like to be doing next? After this? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, next would be, we, we hope to get this thing set up. Somewhere. Right. Yeah. Um, it would be called electric television. Um, and, uh, it would be like SCTV. If it were a period piece, you know, mm-hmm. and um, all of the backgrounds are from old movies. Uh, and I have another project after this that's I'm really stoked about. It's um, theoretically more mature. Um, the characters are rounder. Um, it's sketchy and it's conceptual, but they're, they're, the characters have their feet on the ground. Mm. And um, it takes place. What I like about it is it's got a a chance for a lot of older actors over 50 and then um, younger actors. It it's, takes place in a school setting, like an educational setting. Oh. Um, I don't want to go too much into it. Cause I, I, yeah, yeah. But it's, uh, it's really cool. It's the thing I want to do after this, you know, I'm, I've got a pilot mostly made written that uh, I'm really excited about. And, um, you know, I have just a backlog of stuff that, you know, if we can get at least one thing set up, that's that's you know viewed as successful hopefully i can dust off these other projects projects that i've at one time or another been really excited about mm-hmm. and to just reignite the project and 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 sell them too you know the fraser spec the fraser spec yeah of course first and foremost yes i can't wait uh okay great so we're gonna wrap up uh with you giving your thoughts on a sketch idea i have oh okay so uh this is a sketch premise this this is a sketch premise okay um well I, are, are you on twitter I am, but I don't really use it that much. Okay, well, on Twitter, there's like this thing where um, when a tweet goes like viral, the, someone will put under it and it's like, here's a link to my, while you're here, here's a link to my SoundCloud. So they, they just try to like take advantage of like the, the eyeballs on their tweet on their Twitter. Yeah, so yeah, they they tweet something and then they've got like a signature at the bottom that says, see me on SoundCloud. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So this would be podcast. like a real life version of that. So it'd be like a, a doctor patient and the doctor would be like, 
I have your test results. Uh, but first, I'm going to need you to listen to my, my music, my SoundCloud. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so that's kind of the idea. While I have your attention, please check out my SoundCloud. <laughs> okay. Well, that's good. That's a good premise. Um, I feel like, you know, as always, you got to escalate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it'd be kind of funny if the patient is uh, annoyed, you know, and refuses to listen. Right. Um, and then the doctor keeps putting his foot down and the patient listens. And is like, okay, you know, it's actually good. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> this is pretty good. Let me listen to it a little more. All right. You know, this, this guitar work is not bad. You got a pretty good voice. This makes me angry. <laughs> you know, um, let's see. Uh, yeah, I like the idea of it, of it actually being like a good piece of music. Well, it's just because that's not what you expect. Right, right. <laughs> it's always, you know, it's and that would be the way you, that'd be the first draft is that, it, boy, this is awful. You know, mm-hmm. why don't you stick to being a doctor, you know? Um, but then it, it seems like it needs to, uh, um, like maybe you could start before that. You can have the, uh, you know, the, before the doctor comes in, you have the, uh, the nurse or something oh, yeah. who kind of takes your temperature and gets your height and everything. What if it starts there and they try to promote themselves in some other way. And then once the doctor comes in, it's like, Hey, you know, you wouldn't believe it, but this, yeah. you got to keep a lid on these uh, nurses you have here. I mean, I just got promoted. You know, they were just promoting their thing. Oh yes. That's, we're going to have to have a talk yeah. anyway, before we start, uh, <laughs> yeah. I would like to, you know, like, it seems like if you ease into it a little bit, that would be funnier. Less, it's like the whole world's crazy, and he's the straight man too. Yeah, yeah, yeah yes. Uh, there's a, t- a term for that: uh, mm-hmm. crazy person in a uh, sane person in a crazy world. Yeah, yeah the one sane person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I feel like it could go. Um, seems like you want to st- <laughs> reveal that the whole thing is a reality show. Yeah, <laughs> it's the big called the big... doctor's office. And, <laughs> You know, um, um, and then the person leaves and then it's, they get in the, in the Uber and yeah. Uh, hope you don't mind. You're part of a show right now. (laughs) (laughs) Like the whole world is some version of a reality show or someone's social media. That feels like a, like a mystery show kind of spin on it. Yeah. Well, you know, I did, I was involved (laughs) with that show. But yeah, I feel well, I always go for conceptual anyway, you know, it's um but uh, yeah, that feels fun. I feel like it needs to go into outer space somehow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, symbolically, you know. Right. Like it it starts in a real cool conceptual way and a doc especially a doctor to do that, mm-hmm. you know. You expect your Uber driver, you know, you expect um but the doctor it's like, "Hey, don't you have a career?" Right, right. <laughs> Aren't you making money? Why do you need to That's why it's kind of funny and surprising that the doctor's also doing it. It wasn't recently there was uh I was getting a haircut and they were playing uh uh People's Court. Mm-hmm. And um it was this Uber driver who was uh suing somebody for scratching their trunk when they were putting their suitcase in. And um so uh this person starts talking about the law and uh Judge Judy says, Wait a minute, are you some kind of lawyer? He's like, Yes. <laughs> Wait, you're he's like, Yes, and I have my own law firm. And He's like, wait a minute, are you a driver or are you a lawyer? Uh, yes. <laughs> it's like oh, everybody has a second thing they're doing. So that it really that feels like something that's now. You know? Right. Yeah. It feels like a sketch that you that wouldn't make sense 
five to 10 years ago, but right now it's, it totally works and everybody goes, Oh, <laughs> you know, like there's some, some sketches that are evergreen. That feels like something that would be continue to be evergreen while it's, it's new right now. It feels like it's a recent, you know, modern sketch, but it also feels like probably 15 or 20 years, they'll still be an analog in some way. Right. Know? Or they'll look back, they'll look at it and go, Oh, this was really ahead of its time. You know? mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, have I helped? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, <laughs> uh, anything you want to plug? What's that? Any, anything you want to plug? Electric television. Television. Uh, look for it, 2019. Um, I got uh, b- uh, fingers crossed on it. I uh, got uh, b- big, big uh, hopes up. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. How about you? Do you have anything? Anything to plug? Uh, this podcast, baby. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Alan. Cool. Can I come back when it's uh, when we have the show? Yeah, sure. All right. Cool. <laughs>